From Alaska to Texas, Florida to North Dakota, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, an increase in the number of rental units rather than rent control is the solution to the lack of affordable housing. Roger Valdez of the Foundation for Research on Economic Opportunity is here to explain. As Congress and the President fight over increasing the national debt ceiling, Americans are working longer to pay for the increased cost of government. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. Does the end justify the means, or does how you win matter? Eric Bame and Stephanie Slade of Reason Magazine are here to discuss. And the debate over slavery reparations has resulted in a completely unworkable proposal in San Francisco. Colin Hanna from Let Freedom Ring USA has this week's American Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. The rising cost of housing has resulted in more calls for the federal government to impose price control on rental units. That, however, would further limit the supply of affordable housing. Roger Valdez is a research fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity and is director of the Center for Housing Economics. He is here to discuss the issue. Roger, welcome to American Radio Journal. Roger, when we talk about rental units specifically relative to housing here and the ability to have affordable housing, talk a bit about who actually owns rental units, be it apartments, duplexes, single-family housing. Are these all big corporations or is small business involved? It's really a range of human beings that are involved in the process or the, the reality of owning and operating rental housing in the United States. I mean, it's everything from a retiree that's renting out their basement to a college student to a person who is owning and operating, say, two or three single-family homes, maybe an Airbnb or something like that as one of them. Then there's people that are small or medium-sized apartment operators that own maybe 100 units, 1,500 units. I want to emphasize as well that there's real estate investment trusts that can be traded in on the stock exchange that that are investors, you know, so it's ordinary everyday people that might have a part of their portfolio for their retirement that's invested in an apartment building in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and they may live in in Florida and they're retired and that's how they're paying for their their retirement is an investment, you know, that is, is, might be considered corporate. So it ranges all the way from, yeah, big corporations, but the, the thing about a larger property owner and investor is that they are obligated to investors, which are often small people as well. So ultimately, it's a web of relationships financially, financial relationships that are pretty complex, but ultimately involve human beings and people that you're standing in line waiting for your coffee or coaching your kid's uh, softball team. One of the folks that's a parent of those kids might own a couple of apartment buildings or might be trying to manage their a rental house somewhere. So it's really ranging all over the place, and it's really... Just like any other business, it's a marginal business. It's not a passive income thing. So sometimes you win and sometimes you lose at the end of the day. And it really is all about providing consumers with a product of housing and trying to do that in a, at a competitive price and meeting that need for a place for people to live. 
I would assume, as with virtually every other business over the last three or four years, given the COVID-19 pandemic, Roger, that there have been some serious challenges uh, that have been faced by those who rent out rental units, rental housing units, specifically the small guy. Talk a little bit about the impact of especially the, the moratorium on evictions. When this thing happened, one of the first things that I did was to urge rent relief. And the example we gave was a grocery store during the pandemic, if you're going to shut down business and take away people's income, they're going to still have to pay rent, buy groceries and everything else. The attitude towards many things was, we'll give people relief so they can go buy food. We weren't telling people to go to the grocery store, load up your grocery cart, and then just load up your car and drive away without paying. But when it came to rent and rental housing, the government basically said, well, everybody, uh, you don't have to pay rent. We're going to ban eviction. And there was no rent relief. And so many people, especially sort of smaller folks, had people living in there, maybe a duplex or something, that didn't pay rent for months and ultimately years through this period of the last few years. And they couldn't get rid of those people. And many of these folks were just simply not paying because they knew they could, they could get away with it. Some of them were having other issues or problems. And the whole thing ended up affecting some people. The good news is that I think that, generally speaking, most people did what they knew they should do, and they paid their rent. Uh, the real problem was government taking away people's income and not replacing it with anything, and then prohibiting or limiting the ability of people to intervene in their own private property and get people out of there that possibly were not paying, not because they had any impact from COVID, but just because they... They said, well, if I don't have to pay this, I'm going to hang on to that cash and use it for something else uh, in uncertain times. So it, was, it could have been a bigger disaster than it was, but it created a lot of uncertainty in the market and I think ultimately has uh, reinforced the idea that, uh, that government is looking for ways to intervene in private property to limit the ability of private property owners to use their property and to be able to have control over who's there and for how long. Taking a look at the fact that we do have a shortage of affordable housing in this country, and rental units, of course, are one way to address that. But what has been suggested by some is that there be rent control or price caps put on rental units. Is that really economically feasible, especially for a lot of these small landlords that you've discussed? First of all, when it comes to housing, we don't need more affordable housing. We need more housing so that it's affordable. And this is just basically the principle of supply and demand. And when prices go up, that's an indication that's a quantitative measure of lack of supply in the face of rising demand. And that's a real thing. And so when, we're, when you look at uh, smaller operators or medium size or any, or any level of operator that's renting out private property, when prices start to rise, that's an indication more people need housing. And if you cap rents and you limit the ability of people to collect that rent, what you're doing is you're limiting them, that their ability to pay their own costs and expenses. And particularly when there's inflation, what you're seeing is prices rise all over the place, including for fuel and utilities and labor and everything else. When you impose rent control or any price control, you're, you're limiting the ability of producers to recover their costs of operation and management and providing the, the, the product. And so it's a big disincentive to, to create the product and to produce the product. 
We have been talking with Roger Valdez, who is a research fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. He's also director of the Center for Housing Economics. Roger, tell us a bit about the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Also, where can folks go to read more about this issue on the web? Well, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity is is a think tank that's focused on people who are kind of at the middle income and lower and doing research on, on market solutions that would help those folks get ahead and, and really realize the opportunity that this country provides in terms of uh, our economy and our free market system. You can go to freeop.org. It's F-R-E-O-P-P dot O-R-G. Roger Valdez from the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Roger, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth, standing by, keeping an eye on all the talk that's going on on Capitol Hill relative to the debt limit and spending and budgets. And we're going to talk about all that today. Scott, good to have you here. Well, it's great to be back, Loman. Thanks for having me. It seems, Scott, like the government, the federal government just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. What's going on with that and efforts to rein it in? Loman, imagine if your boss or listeners, everybody that's listening, imagine if your boss told you that you had to work for free from January 1st until April 15th. And then when April came around, you learned that you actually have to work for free an entire another month. This, my friends, is what federal income taxes and inflation in 2022 cost the American people. When you think about how much we're taxed with federal income taxes, and then that hidden tax of the historic level of inflation wiping out one month of, of earning that everybody has. Then let's get to the middle of May and you realize, oh, we actually also pay taxes for Social Security and Medicare payroll taxes. And then you're kind of kind of getting frustrated and you decide, I'm going to take a vacation, right? I'm going to go to the beach. It's early summer and you're gassing up your car and you remember that there's gas taxes and there's tolls and then there's sales taxes on everything else. And you start to really put the math together and you're realizing that the federal government you're supposedly financing spends way more than it collects in those taxes, burdening every American with $92,000 in debt and every household with $239,000 in debt. But you don't think that you're going to have to pay that bill, right? Somebody else is going to end up cutting the the check and taking care of our nation's debt and deficit. But you're also realizing that the government's excess spending is driving the burden of inflation that has you working for that month of the year that you're not making any money because of the decrease in, in earning potential and wages. The bottom line is Uncle Sam prints more money and gives even more out in the form of cash benefits and other anti-poverty welfare benefit programs and tax subsidies and tax incentives. And some of these workers, they're wondering how much more they can actually tolerate. Why should we show up from January until that June beach vacation to work for free? What exactly are the incentives to work? And I think the bottom line here, Loman, is that the U.S. tax and spend system is breeding socialism in America. We had the Inflation Reduction Act, but that didn't do anything to reduce inflation. It was actually the Green New Deal. We had Biden's bipartisan infrastructure bill that was going to spend a trillion dollars on much-needed infrastructure throughout the country, but only a fraction, about 10% of that, actually went to traditional infrastructure projects 
Most of it went to liberal special interests and green energy projects. Then you add in the Biden stimulus. Then you add in the coronavirus emergency supplemental fundings. And these were all mostly special interest handouts. And so as Congress has continued to print all this money, right now we're facing this looming debt limit increase. And so many on the left are saying the debt and deficit is incurred because of Republicans cutting taxes with Donald Trump. Well, the bottom line is when we reduce taxation, it actually creates a real incentive to work. The corresponding move that's necessary is a reduction in big government, in woke and weaponized bureaucracy, and the intrusion in our daily lives. Imagine if you're a risk taker, job creator, and you're sort of staring down this idea you've got on a notepad at your desk. And the bottom line is, as you start to make the math work for whether or not you're going to start a new business, you're dealing with even more taxes on small business job creators, and you're dealing with more of a regulation red tape problem that costs even more for complying with basically these these regulations that only the well-connected and, and those that are wealthy enough to hire an army of lobbyists and lawyers to navigate it are able to, to make their way through. So the bottom line here, I think, is that we've got all these opportunistic politicians that think the American people are dumb enough to believe that we'll get free health care, we'll get free college education. But history proves when you make a good or service for free, it's actually going to increase the cost for everyone else. And I think that when folks also add in, oh, I've got to actually pay for food, well, inflation's driving food prices way up, right? We've seen energy prices decrease a little bit since last summer, but core inflation is still incredibly high. And I'm telling you, in May, inflation's going to go back up once the energy demand on oil and gasoline increases once once again in the summer months. And then you think about housing prices, how those are increasing. What's actually left for the American people to spend at the end of the day? And obviously, I'm, I'm sort of breaking everything down in, in the calendar year. And we know that you get a paycheck, you still got some money, discretionary income. But as, as you have even less and less of that, because of the need to finance big government, the people are scaling back on going to restaurants. And what does that do? It crushes that industry. People are scaling back on going to the movie theaters. What does that do? It, it crushes entertainment. It, they're scaling back on going to baseball games and football games and basketball games. And that's also a big part of the U.S. economy when you think about the way people spend discretionary income. So I think until Americans are willing to give up the, the things that the big government brings, we're never actually going to enjoy true self-sufficiency and individual prosperity. So this is just going to continue to breed this cycle of individual debt. We certainly are going to continue to keep an eye on this. And of course, it's all tied into what's been taking place in Washington, D.C., as we have Republicans now in control of the House of Representatives trying to rein in government spending as part of this debt limit discussion, which we're going to keep an eye on over the next couple of months with Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. And Scott, tell us a bit about the club. Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. If anybody wants to check us out, you can do so at clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. As always, Scott, we appreciate your being with us. Thank you. Thank you. The so-called new right engages in some tactics that are more consistent with the left rather than with conservatism. Eric Bame and Stephanie Slade of Reason Magazine report. For many conservatives, especially those on what we might call the new right, the, the nationalist right, there's this argument that 
basically says classical liberal principles have failed. That classical liberalism is not getting the job done anymore. And that if progressives and Democrats are going to fight as if everything is a win or die battle, then conservatives have to do that too. I'm not convinced, and we're going to get into some of that here today. Thanks for joining us, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. You are listening to American Radio Journal, and my guest today is my colleague, a senior editor at Reason Magazine, Stephanie Slade. She's also the author of a piece you can find in this month's issue of Reason, Against Game of Thrones, Christianity is the headline there. Uh, Slade, thanks for taking some time and talking to us about this, uh, I think, pretty important and interesting topic. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with uh, the headline, Against Game of Thrones Christianity. I think before we can talk about why you might be against that, you're just going to have to define that for us. What is Game of Thrones Christianity? Right, right. This is just a term that I came up with for the piece. It's not uh, out there otherwise, but it's sort of drawing upon the idea from the TV show Game of Thrones, uh, where they say in the show, when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Either you sit upon the throne or you're murdered by whoever is. If you, if you, if you try to take power and you fail, then your opponents are going to, to literally kill you. That's the idea. You win or you die. And this is, I think, sort of seeped into our politics, our domestic politics in the United States in the last few years. So you have people, probably on both the left and the right, but I'm really focused on covering the conservative movement. You have these folks on the right who are saying things like, this is the Flight 93 election, charge the the cockpit or you die. Or things like, the left literally wants to throw us in gulags, and so we must be willing to meet them on the battlefield using the same tactics against them that they're willing to use against us. This is a perception of domestic politics in America today that, that sort of imagines that there, we're in a battle to the death with existential stakes. Either conservatives must win or we will be literally, you know, destroyed. This is markedly different from kind of the traditional conception of conservatism or fusionist conservatism, where it's married with libertarianism in some ways, where like limited government means you don't get to tell other people what to do, but it also means the government doesn't get to tell you what to do. Everybody kind of leaves each other alone. That's diametrically opposed to this conception of like, well, we've got to be on the throne or else we might as well be dead. That's exactly right. And there's the, the folks on the new right, I, I often refer to them as will to power conservatives. And they're, they're open about this. They explicitly will say, we believe that we need to, that conservatives need to embrace a muscular government. So big government is the opposite of the sort of limited government, personal responsibility, individual liberty type principles associated with classical liberalism and the conservative movement, as most people generally you know, think of it. This is something that came about maybe at, in part of the, the Trump years or in the aftermath of the Trump years, but it's really not so much connected to Donald Trump as it is as it is connected to some of other thinkers and, and people on the right wing, uh, people you mentioned in, in the piece like uh, Saurabh Amari, for example, or Adrian Vermeule. You were talking to me before the program here about like J.D. Vance. There's a great example of where he has kind of gone down this path a bit. Yeah. So J.D. Vance, a new senator from Ohio, um, has has campaigned on as part, you know, explicitly as part of the new right or the will to power conservative faction. And so he says things like conservatives need to be willing to use, we need to get into power, we need to acquire state power and be willing to say, for example, use the IRS to tax the assets of nonprofits or universities that are pushing a woke agenda. So this is a government institution going after private institutions using government power to punish private individuals and private institutions for voicing political opinions that they don't like. This is a, a, a true example of you know, the will to power of, of big government, muscular government conservatism. And the justification, of course, is, well, they would be willing to do the same thing to us if they ever had the chance. So we, should, we need to beat them to it. 
We're talking with Stephanie Slade, senior editor at Reason Magazine, about her piece against Game of Thrones Christianity. You can find that online at Reason.com or in the latest issue of uh, the print magazine. Uh, Slade, this is against Game of Thrones Christianity specifically, not against Game of Thrones politics. There's a Christian angle, and and in much of your writing, there's this angle of sort of the intersection of Christianity and conservatism. Uh, I want to finish on that point here because I think really the most important point in this piece is one you make kind of in the middle here about the irony to this approach to politics uh, is that it's pretty much at odds with Christian virtue in a lot of ways. That's right. Many of these guys, they most of them are religious. They claim that they are sort of representing the recovery of um, Judeo-Christian values, of, of traditionalism and, and mor- morality correctly understood. They talk a lot about virtue. And uh, a lot of them also use the phrase common good. That's what they say they stand for. It's the common, we are, we are in favor of the common good, um, promoting the common good. And my point is that if they're, if they're really Christians, and many of them do claim to be, and, and not that I'm denying that they are, but they're not doing a very good job of understanding the sort of core central teaching of Jesus Christ, which was that we are called on to lay down our lives for our friends, to love not just our friends, but our neighbors, uh, and not just our neighbors, but our enemies, in fact. And so this is a really, I mean, it's a really, it asks a lot of us to be a Christian, rightly understood, and to take Christ's teaching seriously. We are asked to empty ourselves, to sacrifice ourselves for others, and never to be the ones punishing our enemies, but rather praying for our enemies, and even even if that means accepting the cross, which is which is a pretty difficult, challenging, I say in the piece, this is about the most challenging teaching in the Bible, but it's clearly also at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. This idea that you can just like impose virtue uh, at the point of a sword or by government edict, that's something that we hear that on the left all the time, but now you hear it more and more on the right too. I think this piece does a great job of dissecting exactly what's wrong with, uh, with that kind of worldview. We are unfortunately out of time for today. Stephanie Slade from Reason Magazine, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And again, that is Stephanie Slade. She's uh, one of our senior editors at Reason. You can check out her work online at Reason.com. Check out everything else we're covering around the country there as well. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bame. Catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. The city of San Francisco is considering an expensive and unworkable proposal to pay reparations for slavery. For details, we turn to Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA and this week's American Radio Journal commentary. The reparations movement is back with a new twist. The City of San Francisco's Human Rights Commission has issued a proposed reparations plan that has attracted substantial attention because it recommends a lump sum payment of $5 million to each resident of San Francisco that qualifies. I read the full report and the astoundingly large lump sum payment with no suggestion on where it's to come from, is only half of the plan's economic component. And, believe it or not, it's the smaller half, with apologies to the mathematicians in our audience. There's also a minimum guaranteed annual income, beginning at roughly $97,000 per household, that would last for 250 years. Seriously except it's so outlandish that it cannot be serious. In looking at this issue and the controversy that it stirs, it's important to admit that some, but not all, of the discrimination and racial bias that persists in this country is and was facilitated by government, and it is not unreasonable to hold the position that government at various levels should admit that responsibility and, ideally, attempt to address it with more than just words of apology. If you do not accept that basic premise, 
then you might as well admit that you're a defender of the status quo. I'll put you down as opposed to reparations of any kind and unlikely to change. But if you're someone who values the principles of intellectual integrity and who's willing to approach an issue with an open and honest mind, then please lean in. I'm a conservative, and the vast majority of conservatives, by their very inner nature, tend to defend the status quo and reject the premise of reparations. But I believe there's an honest way to approach the social ill of racial discrimination without sacrificing any conservative principles. There's no denying that permitting legal chattel slavery in the United States was a gross injustice. In addition to the cruelty that frequently accompanied it, slavery was fundamentally dehumanizing. The Emancipation Proclamation specifically restored the humanity of slaves by beginning by referring to them as persons. General Sherman's famous Field Order No. 15, later called 40 Acres and a Mule, was the first attempt at reparations by providing what newly freed slaves said they most wanted, land. And the argument presented was that, with land, they could work it. The black Baptist minister Garrison Fraser told Sherman, the best way we can take care of ourselves is to have land and turn it and till it by our own labor, and we can soon maintain ourselves and have something to spare. Now that's a statement of self-reliance and personal responsibility that should warm the heart of any modern-day conservative. And note how different that is from the automatic grant of a $5 million lump sum in cash proposed by the San Francisco Commission. There were some impractical aspects of Sherman's order, and adding surplus army mules after the end of the Civil War was both innovative and insufficient for the demand, and a few other modifications to the order that would have been necessary for effective implementation, but you get the basic idea. Grant to the freed slaves some land assets of their pre-war owners and give them the opportunity to advance themselves toward equality. The San Francisco plan makes no attempt to associate the financial burden to those responsible for the racism so it must be assumed that the financial burden would fall on all citizens of San Francisco not eligible for the reparation payments, including new residents, immigrants, many of whom are Asian and who may have been subject to similar kinds of discrimination. It is unworkable as an act of restoration of justice. Furthermore, it will almost certainly result in large numbers of those paying the burden leaving the city, resulting in an ever-increasing cost to be borne by an ever-decreasing funding source. Instead of addressing an injustice, it creates an injustice. The 40 acres and a mule plan, even with all of its difficulties and impracticalities, was at least an effort to provide a benefit to those deprived of benefits from those who in some way denied them the benefits. What happened to it? After the tragic death of the Republican President Abraham Lincoln, who had endorsed the basic idea, the next president, Andrew Johnson, canceled it. Since he had been Lincoln's vice president, wasn't he also a Republican? No, he was a Democrat, whom Lincoln selected in the hope of persuading the Democrat border states to remain in the Union. So, my conservative and largely Republican friends, 
a reparations plan that was national, fair, and workable, and supported by a Republican, was canceled by a Democrat. And now we are looking at a reparations plan that is local, unfair, and unworkable, being proposed by a new generation of Democrats. Republicans should avoid the temptation of criticizing it. It will die on its own, and the sooner, the better. This has been Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring for American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WMXO-FM in Olean, New York, WVMM-FM in Grantham, Pennsylvania, along with WJJB-FM in Gray, Maine. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program, please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.